I want to invite all of you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're new with us this morning or maybe you've been gone for a couple weeks, we are in Philippians chapter 2 of the New Testament. We're walking our way through this book, taking a couple verses at a time through this journey. Um, You can turn your handout over and you can kind of see at the bottom of that handout where we've been so far. Um, We just walk through one passage at a time, just kind of unpacking it and trying to apply it to our lives. Um, I think that uh, very clearly you see that on that handout, you see there's a couple themes that kind of pop out through chapter 1 and 2. First of all, a gospel-centered life. This is a, a, a life that is consumed with the fact that we have, are simply sinners saved by God's grace. Amen. Sometimes, like I just prayed, we, we think we're all that. <laughs> Sometimes we, we are compelled to this temptation to, to think life revolves around us. And then we remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The supreme God-man who came and died for sinners, as Paul says, for a chief sinner like him, and as I can resound, for a sinner like me. That Jesus Christ came through humility. He took on himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, became obedient to death, even the death of the humiliating Roman cross. That's where we've been through this passage. So we see this concept of gospel-centered life, and then we transition right into this concept of because of the gospel, now how do we interact with each other? And there's this word that just kind of pops. It's the word humility. This is the focus here now as we transition to chapter 1 into chapter 2 is humility. When we look at the passage, though, there's this, there's this exhortation to unity as well. Because Christ came to bring in us into one with the Father, we now exist in one with the body. There's this unifying factor of what happens in the church. And what is going to make unity happen in the body of Christ? This passage clearly says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And what's that mind? It is a mind of humility. So what we've been talking about is this. If Jesus Christ humbled himself, shouldn't we? If the great Savior humbled himself and went to the cross and sacrificed to make this happen, shouldn't we sacrifice to keep this happening? This is the exhortation of this passage. Um, Last week, or two weeks ago, last week, what a blessing that was to have Nicholas Allen, Dr. Nicholas Allen speak to us. I just love the way he presented the word. Quieting a noisy heart. I've been thinking of that all week long. What an appropriate sermon for my family this last week. Uh, Not just my family, for me personally this last week. I mean, constantly going to these concepts of, uh, as we close out the sermon last week, Psalm 46, I believe that uh, Mike's going to be reading from this at the end of the service today in benediction verse. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. God, quiet my noisy heart. So I've been meditating on that this week. But the prior week, we looked at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. You can also see this on the backside of your handout. In review, these verses say this. Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, 
As you have obeyed, so now, not as not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In no way is this works-oriented salvation, but in every way is this a salvation that works. There's effort involved in the spiritual life. This is dependent effort because the very next verse, verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is dependent effort. So what is it going to take in the life of the body of Christ to keep unity? Brothers and sisters, it's going to take effort. Dependent effort. It's going to, say, it's going to take saying no sometimes to those words that I really just want to say to that person. It's going to say yes to that time when you have an opportunity to serve, but you're like, oh God, show me someone to serve, but not that person. And it's going to take dependent effort, serving when we don't want to serve, humbling ourselves when we don't want to humble ourselves, restricting ourselves from exploding in massive words that will hurt. That is the humility we find in this passage. It's going to take effort. Well, now we transition straight from this concept of dependent effort in verses 12, 13, right into another very appropriate topic. It's amazing how Paul slides so quickly from be humble, be unified, to now verse 14 that reads this. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. I don't know about you, but if, as I read that, I'm like, oh boy. Really? Well, you had to go there right away, didn't you, Paul? To the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about this humility of mind in the life of a believer, and you're like, oh man, really? So let's take a couple minutes and talk about this. Um, I think... I was thinking about this quite a bit this week. It's no secret that we live in a very consumeristic, materialistic culture. I mean, it's no secret. A culture that is basically a greenhouse for discontentment. You understand what I'm saying? We have it so easy. I mean, I mean there's so many ways we can look at this, but the culture we live in is basically... Do it because it pleases you, and if it doesn't please you just the way you want it, then you have a mouth for a reason. Let that mouth be heard. Let everybody know how displeased you are with the current circumstances. We live in a culture that is a greenhouse for discontentment and complaint. I've been thinking quite a bit about that this week. I mean, uh, the, the motto sometimes is, you're going to play the way... I want you to play, or I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to, or you better get the right show. I'm going to get the right show, get the right app, get the right video on my TV, device, computer, and just the way I order it, or else you're going to hear from me. I'm going to get the right shoes, the right shorts, the right shirts, the right pants, the right sweaters, the right hats, the right glasses, and I'm going to get them all just the way I like it. And if not, you'll hear from me. I want to get the weather, the exact weather that I ordered that day. Didn't God know? 
And if it doesn't show up the way, just you wait. That social media is going to light up with my displeasure and what God did for my day. I mean, I'm, this is just where we're at, brothers and sisters in Christ. We live in a culture where it's easy to slide into complaint and displeasure. And, and I don't think we're out of bounds to say that this slides very quickly into the body of Christ. Very easily into what happens in the body of Christ. I mean, I was, I was thinking this week about, in a very practical way, how does this make sense in the community we live in? Okay, just in a very tangible, practical way. What about the burgers we eat, right? You want to double, double stack, go here. I love Wendy's. But if I go get my double stack and the fries aren't done the way I, write, I like, just where I'm going to go? I'm going to go find me the, the Whopper. If I'm really hungry, the double Whopper. You understand what I'm saying? This is just an evidence of where we live, where 100 years ago it was like, yeah, I get a burger? Now it's like, you better do it the way I want or I need to talk to your manager. If that's not going to help you, then I'll go to the Golden Arches. They, they've got a new creative menu. It's awesome. How many ways can we do a burger? Well, we're going to find out when we go to McDonald's. And we'll definitely, anyways. And if you really want a good burger, how about this place on the right? In-N-Out Burger. That, that sauce that just oozes out, which by the way, I'm breaking every pastoral rule about illustrations by bringing up food illustrations an hour before lunch. <laughs> your, your stomach's going to be growling for 45 minutes, so I apologize. Very insensitive of your pastor, preaching pastor this morning. But the fact of the matter is, if we don't want it this way, we'll go to this place and get it this way. If our liking this night is for the double burger, oh, but we want bacon on it, and we're going to go get the baconator. This is how we're, and if we're super spiritual, we're going to this place. <laughs> I cannot wait till God in his sovereign hand provides Chick-fil-A in Reading. <laughs> I love Chick-fil-A. So we'll just avoid the burger thing and go straight to the eat more chicken thing. I mean, in fact, I don't, I don't know if you've been watching. We had a good time as a staff meeting this week because uh, I'm following pretty closely this whole thing with Kanye West and the radical transformation that's happened in his life. And my initial response is to become somewhat skeptical, cynical of what's happening. But then I, I read deeper into what's happening in his life and I'm like, man, the power of the gospel can save souls. I love what's happening. So if it's any evidence of what the Spirit's doing, one of the first songs he wrote was called Closed on Sunday, Chick-fil-A. No joking. In his album, Jesus is King, there's a Chick-fil-A song. As soon as you get out of here, you got to go listen to this Chick-fil-A song. I've been laughing all week because I love it. At the end of the song, he yells out Chick-fil-A. Anyways, I'm not sure where that came into here. But it did, and so now we're all hungry, and so let's talk about complaining. <laughs> I think lest you get antsy and you think that guy up there thinks he's got it all together. And he's going to unleash on us on complaining today, so get ready. Here he comes. I'm going to say, in full disclosure, this was not a good week for me in regard to complaining. I, uh, I mean... 
I am working through these things just like all of us in this room. Uh, this week, by God's gracious, gracious hand, uh, Hannah was able to go visit a friend uh, in Minnesota. This is a friend of ours that we love dearly. She was in our wedding, and she's near 40 now, just turned 40, who's in the last week or two of her life. Stage four cancer has taken over her body. It's swollen up. Her bones are breaking. Everything's happening. Well, Hannah had the chance, by God's grace, supplied a way uh, to send her out there. So my loving wife left me. And our four, five kids, sorry. I think I got to remember that one. So our, our five kids, and Hannah's up there. I'm so thankful she can go. But our five kids and I, we had a, a week. Yeah, you ever had one of those weeks? I mean, I felt often like I was on a ride at Disneyland. Not much sleep, running all over the place, and happened to be a ride that didn't have water and electricity this week. <laughs> on top of all of that, you ever like knocked your neck out and so you're walking around like this? Yeah, that was kind of the first part of my week. <laughs> And all of that stuff, Tuesday came around, and I'm talking to my dear wife, and she's emotional a, a, a bit. I mean, she's holding it together really well, but talking about her friend. And you know what could come out of my mouth? All of a sudden, it was like spewing, and this and that, and this and that, and we did this, and I can't believe this. And the lights are out still, and the water's not working, and, and keep going on. And then I just had to stop and laugh. And I said, Hannah, guess what I'm preaching about on Sunday? <laughs> Do all things without complaining and arguing. And so lest you think this is just something for us in this congregation, this is what God has been working me over in this week, all week long, going and visiting some folks that were in the, the hospital with Chapel and Jim this week, thinking about some other ones. Another one passed yesterday, thinking about life and thinking about how sometimes we think we got it real bad. And there's others in this world that are going through things drastically worse than we have it right now. When we think about this passage today, I want us to think in terms of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that is a gift from a beautiful, glorious God. This gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the way we see life in a broken world. And Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the primary imperative of this passage, which is this, of this section of verses. Do all things without. Do all things without murmuring and disputing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. If you would follow along with me, I'm going to go ahead and read 14 through 18. What does Paul say? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And now we have three verses here on the reason that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, 
likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So I want us to do is this morning, think in terms of verse 14 and 18. Verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Do all things without grumbling and disputing or arguing. Then we have three verses of reasons, and then now we have verse 18. And what does 18 say? Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The primary imperatives, the commands in this passage are this. Don't do something, but do something. What are we not to do? Grumble and dispute and complain. What are we to do? Be overwhelmed with joy. The joy from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So on the top of your page, you see this. Exchanging complaint for joy. Brothers and sisters, that's the simple theme of what we're talking about today. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have this privilege, yes, this command in the scriptures to exchange the temptation for complaint with the opportunity to embrace a joy that only Jesus Christ can give through suffering. That is this passage. This morning, we'll see through the next four verses, Paul makes these two simple arguments Humble living compels true believers to refuse to react selfishly. And number two, humble living compels true believers to choose. I'm going to say that again. To choose to respond joyfully. Can we take a couple minutes and look at that? I'll start with this one. Humble believers or humble living compels true believers to refuse to react selfishly. Refuse to react selfishly. Paul says, this is on the screen up here, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Do all things. Can we just unpack this a little bit? Let's just go through and navigate through this passage. Unpack every, all the words. Do all things. Okay, what comes to mind when you see that? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if he could just say, like, do most things? <laughs> do most things in life without arguing and complaining or disputing. When you look at this, what is the, what's the clear imperative here? It's do all things. This is all-inclusive. It doesn't say do it all except for with if you're with this person. Do it all except if you're on social media. Do it all except for if it's with a text. What is this passage? Just do all things. This is all-inclusive. What are we talking about in this passage? This is an all-inclusive appeal, which includes everything I do, every facet of my life. It involves everywhere I go. Church, home, work, car. This involves everyone I talk to. Even your BFF, right? Your best friend forever. Do all things without arguing and disputing. Even our soulmate. He says, do all things without grumbling. Very clearly, he focuses on this word, grumbling, complaining. Some of your translations will actually use the word complaining. Complaining, it means displeasure expressed in murmurings, irritability, or moaning. It's actually one of those onomatopoeic words. You know what that means? 
the actual word sounds like the meaning. Grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. Even in the Greek. It sounds like the word. It is literally an utterance made with a low tone of voice. You know what happens when something doesn't happen the way we want it to. Well, you want it to or I want it to. What's our response? All right, the low tone of voice. This is this grumbling. This is under the breath or behind the scenes talk. Practically, so in a very practical sense, what is this grumbling? It is dissatisfaction, it is annoyance, it is frustration about events, circumstances, opinions that don't meet up to my preferred agenda, comfort, or outcome. And this non-preferred outcome or agenda affects my words, it affects my looks, it affects my actions, and it affects my reactions. And Paul says here, do all things without this grumbling. Which, by the way, you can grumble without saying a word. (laughs) Verbal and nonverbal communication. Do all things without grumbling. It goes beyond simple recognition of a struggle. And this is where it's at. It goes beyond simple recognition of a struggle or an adversity. And what I like to look at is this way. Beyond a simple recognition to a hovering over the adverse situation with displeasure. Not just recognizing that it's there, but hovering over it with bitterness in your heart toward what's happening. Biblically, actually, before we even get there, I like doing reading. I like to read. And uh, I was reading this week a little bit on the current culture, what they say about complaining. And it's funny, even a a non-Christian world will have some really insightful things, very insightful things to say about complaining. Here's the three primary things that they would say about, from this one author, about complaining. First of all, complaining comes as an unconscious habit. Wow. Often as a conversation starter. You ever think about that? So I know after church today, there's going to be silence. (laughs) Right? No. Because often how we start conversations is starting with a complaint. Um. I, we'll get more to that in just a minute because there is a difference between hovering over a situation and simply acknowledging it. Hovering over it with bitterness rather than just simply acknowledging an adverse situation and even kind of laughing over it. But what this person said was it comes as an unconscious habit. I mean, I think about my life. Often there's complaints that happen all through the day. Not good. <laughs> Number two, Complaining is often shared with those who really can't do anything to fix the problem. <laughs> you ever notice that? We like to complain to someone that just wants, that can hear to us, but they can't do anything about it. Here's another one. Uh, you know, the, number three, complaining is usually given to make, simply make the complainer feel better about themselves. So why do we complain? It's to make us feel better about ourselves. And there's a reason behind that. It's because it takes us and elevates us to a place of control in our lives. Which is ironic, but not ironic. It's very intentional in this passage because what does the previous verse say? It is God who is at work in you, both to do and will of His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and arguing. What complaining does is says, I want to be in control. And it does not look the way I thought it should look. 
biblically, we have to stop and realize, I mean, just the path all the way through the scriptures on complaining. Think about this. What happened in the first three chapters of our Bibles, the first five chapters of our Bible? You ever thought about the first formal response of Adam after the fall, after he disobeyed God, was a complaint? You ever thought about that? But God, the woman you gave me. What, Adam? So the biggest blessing in your life, Adam, and all of a sudden it's her fault now. It's like, God, you gave me her. It's your problem. I mean, if you travel through the book of Genesis, you see this complaint, but then highlighted in any of the discussion on complaining, we have to go where? To the children of Israel who just came out of Egypt. Do you remember this story? It's an exodus of our Bibles. 14, 15, any one of the passages through the book of Exodus is a pattern set where God would come in and dynamically do something to pull his children out of a bad situation. We're talking about out of Egypt. We're talking about crossing the Red Sea, splitting the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, having the Red Sea fall on the Egyptian army and kill them. And what happens? They start walking around and what comes out of their mouth? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Grumble, grumble, grumble. God had just rescued them and redeemed them. God had just given them clear instructions for their lives on Mount Sinai. God had even supernaturally supplied for them water and food that they did nothing to earn other than just go pick it up off the ground and cook it up. To just open their mouths and drink. And what happens through all of that? They found a way to complain against God and his person, Moses. But that's a pattern. I mean, oftentimes we go to the scriptures because that's what's looked back to. But I'm going to tell you, that sounds a lot like struggles that the new covenant church goes through. We have been redeemed by a great savior. We've been drawn out of sin We've been rescued by an almighty God through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what is the temptation of my heart? Murmur, murmur, murmur. To find something to pick on. To find something to complain about. Well, as you think biblically, we have to recognize that passage. But I do want to take some time before we, we spend a lot of time on this grumbling verse. Sorry, uh, word, sorry. We'll move on. After a brief time out for pastoral clarification. <laughs> because when I think about this, I think, oh man, this could be taken in some wrong directions. First of all, this exhortation to all things without grumbling does not exclude us from ever sharing or noting adverse situations, prayer requests, struggles, etc. This is clearly in scriptures. Paul clearly shares his adverse situation. 2 Corinthians 4 is a clear, dynamic illustration of this. However, as Paul shares this, he's not hovering over it in bitterness. He's holding it forth in honest trust to God. And there's a difference. I think all of us kind of probably know that difference in our own hearts. Sometimes it weasels in with temptation that's hard to identify, those idols of our hearts. But sometimes we know when that switch goes from holding it up to God and trust to hovering over it in bitterness. So it's not saying, this passage is not saying never share with, you, with anybody an adverse situation. 
We don't walk around here with a smile and never share something struggling, we're struggling with. There's imperatives in the New Testament that says confess your faults one to another. Deal with these things. Bring them out and deal with them. So it's not saying don't ever share an adverse situation. But how do you deal with that adverse situation? How do you hover over it or how do you release it? Here's another area of clarification. This exhortation not to grumble is not referring to dissatisfaction and honest concern over clear biblical sin and or heresy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a time to bring up complaint. And it is when God's word is not handled accurately. It is when heresy works its way into the body of Christ. This is a time to do what happened with 95 theses nailed to the Wittenberg Castle. A declaration of what does God's word say. Obviously, there's a lot that happened from 1517 till now in this journey. But this is the kind of thing, there are things we need to voice an opinion about. And it is when God's word is disobeyed. When God's word is clearly not heeded. These are things we bring to the forefront. We talk of. I think a good passage to consider in regard to that is 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, whoa, 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 this stuff's happening in the church and no one's saying anything about it? We need to talk about these things. And this is where we run to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, where it says, how do you speak that truth? Do you speak the truth in love? All right, so let's go to the next word. Enough, enough of that grumbling word. <laughs> I know we're grumbling because I spent too much time on the grumbling word. But let's go to the next part there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What is this disputing? It's intellectual reasoning that leads to banter and argument. This word has more ties to what happens in the brain and the logical way we think through things that eventually comes out in our disputes. Um, it's, it's verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed, as one lexicon says. I like to look at it as a, a festering from inner complaint and reasoning that will eventually explode all over someone, anyone, or sometimes everyone. Almost every day I get to look at Lassen Peak. I love it. I love mountains. And I look over there and I see the clear indentions in the mountains over there. And sometimes in my mind I want to see the pictures and I Google it. See the pictures of what Lassen Peak, Mount Lassen, looked like before 1915. And the indentions in it. And even beyond that, what happened in Lassen Peak wasn't something that just triggered because it needed to happen that day. It is something that built up over time. When we think of what's happening in this verse, we're talking about grumbling and disputing. I think both of them go hand in hand, where you complain on the inside, you become bitter on the inside, you complain about these things, and before long, guess what it's going to do in the body of Christ? It's going to erupt. It's going to explode. And Paul says very, very pointedly, do all things in the body of Christ, and even in our own lives, without grumbling and disputing. And we need to move on. <laughs> We need to move through this passage. So Paul says, refuse to live selfishly, refuse to react selfishly. But then he gives two primary reasons. Living unselfishly will result in what? In verses 15 through 17. Hopefully you're following along through the, the flow of the passage. 
how will this affect the way I live? What is the result of me doing all things without uh, grumbling and disputing? Well, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word to the word of life. I mean, think with me on this for a minute. We just got through a discussion on gospel-centered life. What does gospel-centered life look like? And now he brings into the picture a clear application of grumbling and complaining, grumbling and arguing. Basically, the thought is this. Living without complaining and disputing is basically saying the gospel of Jesus Christ works. It, It does something. But... Living in regular complaint and disputing is basically saying the gospel of Jesus Christ does not work. It has not transformed me to walk in the Spirit. Do you understand what we're saying here? What the passage is saying here? That you may be blameless and innocent, Paul says. Blameless and innocent has to do with pure and unmixed. It has to do with this concept of mixing metals, having foreign alloys into the metals where it's not pure, it's weaker. Paul's saying that you might be pure when it comes to how you respond to life situations. Not mixed where you have a person who claims to be the follower of Jesus Christ, but now is reacting as what Galatians 6 says would be the works of the flesh in fits of anger. Paul says if you want to be a pure disciple of Jesus Christ, realize that you're going to have to say no to those fits of anger that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. This has clear Old Testament connections here, especially with the concept of without blemish, thinking of these sacrifices in the Old Testament. God's children, here's the simple fact, God's children are intended to be untainted from the natural inclinations of the world, primarily in regard to complaining and arguing. The way of the unregenerate heart is to stand up so strongly for myself that it doesn't matter who gets in my way. The way of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who sacrificed on the cross. He says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, so this was 2,000 years ago. This is the same mindset that we have today. We're talking about a generation that calls good evil and evil good. We're talking, I mean, this is a big week when it comes to politics. I'm still kind of finding my way through this California political scene, uh, biblically. (laughs) Wow! Uh, It's going to take me like 10 years just to figure this stuff out, but I'm telling you, When we think about this crooked and twisted generation, it's a generation that likes to slide the door open just an inch or two and make something palatable so that eventually the door can be swung open in the face of disobedience to God. I mean, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to be lights in this world. It is not complaining to use your right to vote. You understand that? It's a right you have. Um, Take this as an exhortation from the preaching pastor here. 
in the midst of a crooked generation, uh, a godless culture that is shrouded in darkness and needs a bright light of the pure, unadulterated gospel where they can look at someone and say, that's a Jesus person. How do you know that's a Jesus person? Because that person is not wrapped up in complaining and arguing. That's what Paul says. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. I love this. I mean, this just goes to those little songs we sang when we were in, you know, Kids church, you know, let your light shine. Straight from Matthew 5, what does Jesus Christ himself says? You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city that is set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light shine bright. I think this is seen in Daniel chapter 12. It kind of starts this off where Daniel and Daniel 12. Think about the life of Daniel. Living in exile. Living for Jesus. And the first part of Daniel, Daniel 1.8 says, He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now this Daniel at the end of the book, what is he saying in Daniel 12? He says this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is Daniel living for God in a godless culture. Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul's referring to here. People see our lives, do they see clearly the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ? Where they, that's a Jesus person. Not because that person's perfect, that person's real, that person struggles, but that person tries to do everything he can to live in a dark world with the light of Jesus. Um, so Wednesday morning this week, again, this week was fun, a lot of fun. Wednesday morning, I went to bed Wednesday night because there wasn't lights, you know, in our house, so uh, we went to bed a little earlier, and I'm like, finally I get to get a good night's sleep. So I'm sleeping, and then all of a sudden, the wind was blowing like crazy out of our place. And all of a sudden, at 1.30 in the morning, it just, there was just like thud. And I'm like, oh, man, because we lost one of our big trees in the front of our house. And then there was a tree beside our house. I was like, that thing just landed on our house. So I get up, you know, rub my eyes, grab a lantern, flashlight. I'm walk, walking outside in my underwear, you know, walking around the corner of the house thinking, okay, where's this tree? And I come around the side of my house, and I see this, it looks like clouds, but it's a massive plume of smoke, and the whole sky is lit up with fire. I don't know if you guys read about or heard about that fire that happened Wednesday morning. It was uh, three properties away from us. Um, there's a, I won't go into details on it, but there was a structure that burned and started just burning up vegetation around it, and it was massive. That wind was blowing it. My first response, being new to California, was like, what? Our house is going to burn down in five seconds. I got to get all the kids up. I mean, Hannah's in Minnesota. I'm running around like crazy, throwing some things in a bag and be like, okay, we're out of here. And then, you know, reality kicked in. We have horses. They keep all of our property down really well. And I went up on the roof like any smart person would do in a windstorm. <laughs> and I start watching this fire. And the wind would blow, and it was just like a campfire, because as soon as the wind would blow, this thing would just like lighten up the whole sky. 
I'm this plume of smoke. And then we, it was kind of a hard place to get to, three or four houses down from us, the pastures. So these uh, firemen were trying with all they could to get in there, and they couldn't. They kept trying every different way to get in there. All the police and the sheriffs and CHP were trying to find this thing. And I called one of my neighbors and woke him up, and I said, you got to look in your backyard. And I'm starting to freak out because I'm, gonna, I'm thinking this thing's jumping over to my house right away. Well, the wind was blowing, but it was blowing towards Ed Bootinger's house. <laughs> He's not here today. So I was good. But at any rate, what, what's the point? I walked around the house, and it was undeniable that something big was happening over there. It shined bright in a night sky. I mean, they were able within a couple hours to knock that thing down. They surrounded it. They actually brought in bulldozers and just, it was, it's amazing what they did. Just piled everything up on the property. All the stuff that needed to be piled up. But when I came around that corner, I saw undeniably that there was a light in the sky. And I knew what was happening over there. When people see our lives, is it undeniable that something's happening in our hearts? When they see us in the night sky, do they see that's a person that is unashamedly a Jesus follower? When they see my response of complaint, is that fire just dimmed a little bit? That next complaint and that argument, is it like, well, I think that person's a Christian, but I'm not quite sure. Or is it one of those things when they see our lives, the lives of someone that's dependent on the sovereign hand of God, they see our lives and they say, that person's a Jesus person. That person responds to suffering a certain way. So much more could be said about this, but I want us to go to the second. I'll just mention this second reason. Not only does this living without grumbling and complaining unhinder our light in a lost world, but it also joyfully encourages uh, those who are also out there in the trenches. What do I mean? It encourages others like the Apostle Paul. He doesn't deny it in this passage that you living without grumbling and complaining is encouraging me, Paul says. I'll just read the text and then we'll move on. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. This is when he was going to die. He says, even if I die, I'm still going to be glad because I know the gospel has taken root in your life. What's the, what's the point here? When we live without grumbling and complaining, you know what it does? It shines as a bright light to unbelievers. And you know what it does? It encourages believers, especially mentors. I'm going to tell you, countless hours by elders and pastors around the world spent on frivolous complaints in the body of Christ. I want this carpet. I want that, you know, flag. I want whatever it might be. The body of Christ is to grow and to flourish and to encourage its, its leadership, its mentors. I want us to go through and look at the last imperatives here. Humble living compels true believers to choose to respond joyfully. So not only is it not doing something, it is doing something. Not only is it refusing to grumble and complain, it is choosing to respond out of joy. Joy, which is naturally a fruit of the Spirit for the regenerate believer in Galatians 5. Joy that we cannot produce on our own. However, joy that is also an imperative in the New Testament. Be joyful. See things from God's perspective. And what does Paul say here? Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Be glad and rejoice. It's two variations of the same word. 
Basically, be glad and be really, really glad. Do it. Don't refuse to rejoice. We'll see rejoicing more as the book goes on. But what's Paul saying here? Rather than complain, choose to rejoice. Why? Verse 12, because God's at work in your life. God's doing something super special. I was overwhelmed even yesterday reading, thinking through Lamentations. Jeremiah, known as the lamenting prophet. Jeremiah in chapter 3, some of my wife's favorite verses come from Lamentations chapter 3. God's mercies, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know what it says in Lamentations 3 about complaining? Listen to this verse. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Can you let that sink in for a minute? Why do I have the right to complain when I look at what Jesus has done to redeem my sinful soul? What's the key idea this morning? God's people must choose to humbly exchange complaint for joy. Let's advance that within context for the sake of the advancing gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ. God's people must choose to humbly exchange complaint and arguing for gladness and joy. Four quick questions. So what? How how is it going to be different? How are we going to be different when we leave from here? Here's a question. Honestly, ask yourself this. As I've been asking myself this, am I a grumbler and a complainer? <laughs> a grumbler and an arguer? Here's, here's, here's the way, of, uh, the litmus of this. What if your life were to end today? How would those who know you best describe you? As someone of joy or someone of complaint? Someone who embraced the sovereign hand of God? and had a smile on their face, or someone who bitterly approached life because everything was wrong? How would those closest to you see your life? Here's another question. Am I shining as a bright light in a lost world? In Colorado, we had these lights, or we had on the highways sand that was put on the roads during ice storms. You travel up I-70 all around the mountains, and you travel in thick, thick traffic. Guess what happens to those bright lights? They started getting more dim and more dim and more dim. Before you know it, you're like squinting out. You look for the next rest stop so you can pull off, and guess what you do? You go clear off that dirt. You clear off that residue so you can clearly see what's in front of you. I want to tell you what God's doing in my life, brothers and sisters in Christ. What complaints need to be cleared off so people can clearly see the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life? Am I a burden to other laborers? Because of the complaints I bring up. And lastly, have I chosen to respond joyfully? Have I chosen? Will I choose this week to respond joyfully? Paul says to this church of Philippi 2,000 years ago, so appropriate today, do all things without grumbling and disputing or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights holding fast or holding forth the word of life.